Welcome to the Build the Future podcast. My name is Cameron Weesey, and I'm your host. I've always been fascinated by the ideas and the sentiment that drove American culture in the 1960s with the space race. A culture galvanized to dream about the possibilities of tomorrow, whether it's food, transportation, cities, biology, or anything else. It was this cultural mindset rooted in optimism that the world tomorrow would be better than the world today. A mindset where people were compelled to build things, and I quote JFK, not because they were easy, but because they were hard. It's this desire to build and to dream that seems to have been lost and is something we're here to bring back. With Build the Future, we're here to promote the ideas and stories of those who see how the future can be better and promote their plans to get us there. It's our mission to get you to dream about the future that you want to live in and inspire you to go build. Today, we're talking with Gonzalo Graham, the founder and CEO of Wattfly. At Wattfly, they're building fully electric flying cars to help build the future of flight. There's not much more that needs to be said, so let's jump right in and talk about a future with flying cars. Thanks for kind of jumping on here today. I'm excited to have you on uh, the Build the Future podcast, talk about all the crazy stuff you're doing. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here. Thank you. Let's start with the basics. Tell me about the future you're building at Wattfly. What's the vision? Yeah, so it's very simple. Wattfly is working on flying cars. Uh, so, so what's a flying car? It's an analogy for an aircraft that, like a car, most people can afford. It's as simple to pilot as a car is as simple to drive. It's safe and it's practical. Uh, so right now, aircrafts are, are great. They're fast uh, and they can get you to from point A to point B really quickly. But they're super impractical and most people don't fly. Uh, you need a runway. Uh, you need jet fuel. No one has that. You need to have a pilot or a pilot license. No one has time for that. Uh, so there are all these barriers around aviation. And that's what we're working on removing with a flying car. Sweet. Let's unpack that a little bit. Tell me about each of those components. You got the, the jet fuel, the, the pilot's license. There's all these restrictions around flying cars or stuff right now. So let's see. So how do you remove jet fuel? Uh, the, the simple uh, solution is making it electric. So that's what we're doing. We're at a point where thanks to what Tesla has done, the whole electric vehicle has done, uh, we, we can now build electric aircrafts. In fact, you see electric aircrafts uh, popping up uh, left and right on the news, which is great. Uh, not only because, you know, you can get rid of jet fuel, you can you just run on electricity, you can charge anywhere. That's great. Reliability also increases. Complexity decreases, which drives the cost down, which is huge in aviation, of course. And then the, there's there's other factors like you can have a distributed powertrain, right? So so you can have kind of like propellers and propulsors throughout your airframe uh, and you don't have to run drive shafts through it. So it gives you a lot of more freedom um, from a design point of view when sending an aircraft. And that basically allows new configurations, uh, VTOL, vertical takeoff and landing, stuff like that. Uh, so, so that's one, right? So that's how you get rid of jet fuel, for example, and then runways, because now we're talking about vertical takeoff and landing. How do you go to the next step? How do you get rid of the pilot and the pilot license? Well, uh, the obvious solution there is, um, autopilot. Right now, we're at a point where drones are already flying themselves. My favorite one, shout out to Skydio. They're, they're awesome. Uh, takes off on its own, follows you around on its own, obstacle avoidance on its own. Uh, it really goes to show where the technology is already. And yeah, and, and then how do you, uh, so, so it can be autonomous, but as long as there's a person on board, you, you still need a pilot license technically. At least that's what the law says right now. So the way we're getting around that is uh, as long as you're under 254 pounds in the US, you're not a, an aircraft per se, you're, you're an air vehicle. And air vehicles do not require a pilot license. This also holds true in Canada, in, in Europe. So it's kind of like a nice caveat, caveat 
which we're using to go to market. And then we can unpack it even further. You can say like, okay, this is all great, but aircrafts are really expensive. So how are you going to make it cheap? Right. And of course, there's, you know, there, there's different ways of making it cheap. Making it the airframe cheap is one. Making operations, operating costs cheap is another. Operating costs gets cheaper by removing jet fuel on the pilot, which we've already touched. Uh, and how do you make an, a cheap airframe? Well, um, step one is making it small. So we're starting with, you know, one passenger. Uh, step two, less complexity. So again, it's electric. And step three, which uh, has not been done before, is volume, right? So, so Boeing produces less than a thousand aircrafts a year in before Corona, right? So now forget it, like maybe a fraction of that. And this is super low. This is peanuts compared to automotive volumes. Now there's smaller aircrafts that are produced at higher rates, like the, the Cessnas, the kind of like the small airplanes you can picture. Those are still like well below a thousand, right? Yeah. They don't make very many of them. I, I believe it's been like, they, they've made 50,000 in the last 50 years. So yeah, no, no volume there, right? The only times we produce aircrafts at high production rates were during war. That's where we hit like the uh, 3,000, 4,000 aircrafts a year per country. And of course that drives economies of scale and so on. So that's, that's when you start making things affordable, rights law kind of thing. So, so yeah, so the goal is to make a small aircraft that, you know, people want and people can use. The, the want comes with, you know, there being a practical use, it being safe, um, stuff like that. Yeah, let's let's talk about the what what are the what's going to compel someone to buy uh, a flying car right now? Like, what are those practical uses? Okay, so I, I would say that practicality is going to increase over time uh, on a roadmap. So today, our first aircraft it's called Atlas. Like I said, it's an air vehicle under two hundred and fifty four pounds, only one passenger. So that on its own caps the, the the practicality, no family trips or anything like that. And it also can only fly in Class G aerospace. So not no heavily populated areas, no airports, no downtown, which happens to be 80% of, of North America. So it's, it's kind of all right, but, but it still kind of restricts it. So why are people buying this aircraft today? Well, it's mostly recreation and fun. Most of our customers, you, we can, we're already selling this aircraft. You can go on our website, wapfly.ca and buy it. Most of our customers are using it for recreation. They, they kind of like want to fly in their, in their property and stuff like that. There's probably also a, a defense, a defense use for it, but that's not what we're focusing on. But yeah. And then that's our first product. Over time, we're adding capacity and then we're also certifying it as an actual aircraft so you can fly anywhere. Now, the cost of certification is high. That's why we're not doing it from the start. Uh, but with certification comes more freedom on where you can fly and also higher speeds, which is a win-win. Oh, so, so right now it's mostly people who are living outside of major metropolitan areas. They may have some land and they just want to fly because, you know, who, who doesn't want to fly, right? So first customer, he had a farm. He was like, I just want to fly around my farm. Uh, and, and we hear a lot about that. Uh, we also hear about people who want to land on their boats, stuff like that. So yeah, right now it's kind of like a, a, a toy for rich people. And in that, it's our Tesla Roadster, so to speak. Exact same start. Yeah. Yeah. So I think most listeners are probably familiar with that because we've talked about that before, but yeah, kind of, kind of walk us, walk us through the, your, your Tesla strategy here. So you have your, the Atlas is your roadster. And then how are you seeing it evolve from there? Yeah. So, so what Tesla did was first a roadster, a sports car. So using the money from the sports car. So it's a, it's a luxury car, a high price stack using that revenue. You pour it onto making a, 
kind of like a, a five-seater sedan that you know most people can afford and has more uses and then pour that to make even a cheaper car for the masses kind of thing so for us it's it's the same uh, well and also to add to that every single iteration on the roadmap would drive the the price down and increase the range that's the version for electric vehicles for us it's pretty much the same thing our iterations are not only about price they're also about adding capacity passenger capacity uh, and adding range bringing the cost down yeah, that's basically it. So every iteration, you know, next iteration, we're talking about a two-seater. And then after that, we might do four-seater. Uh, I do think there's a there's going to be a limit. So paint me kind of the, the longer-term vision of, of like the flying car space. How, do, how does this evolve? Okay, so we have two-seaters, four-seaters. What does the world look like, say, 10, 20 years out when this is like flying cars are, are kind of part of our commonplace? I like to talk about the city of the future as a, as a result of flying cars. So cities, if you think about it, cities are shaped by the transportation technologies, all right? Uh, through history, city size has been a function of how fast we can travel, at what cost, and what densities. And as speed increased, cities can occupy more land, uh, which brings down the, the cost of living, basically, or of housing. So why is speed the unifying principle? Well, the catch here is that people are only willing to travel or commute for one hour a day, back and forth. That's round trip. So 3,000 years ago, when, when we were only walking around, cities had a, a radius of like one mile, which is the distance a person can cover walking half an hour. Uh, and then we, we of course, we domesticated, we didn't invent horses. We domesticated horses in like the 1830s, problem, uh, speed increased with that, our cities. Uh, and then you had the trains and the cars and so on. Um, so it was, it was a 20x uh, increase over 2,000 years. So after that, we stagnated. Now we're kind of like driving around and we're mostly building up and densifying our urban areas. Our average uh, speed is decaying uh, and commute times are reaching all-time highs, right? So, so this is kind of like where we are today. So it's like, how do we kind of like, how do we improve this situation? How do we break the cycle? It's like, well, you need to increase travel speed and, and hopefully get rid of infrastructure. And I think that's where flying cars come. So in the future, I'm picturing a city where well, you can you can pretty much as an individual travel at uh, in any direction at a high speed, much higher than you can do right now. We're talking 200, 300 kilometers per hour. So now uh, city centers are gonna have a bigger radius or are gonna be scattered around. I, I do think sometimes you know if you extrapolate to the future and you think, okay, if travel speed was infinite, uh, which is to say teleportation. What would the world look like? Uh, and what I think we would be looking at is like every single inch of the world would be populated one way or the other, and perhaps a lower density overall, but uh, that would be a function of population. Uh, but I think that's where naturally we want to go. We want to kind of like spread throughout. So so it's the same idea, kind of like I see flying cars as a, you know, a step towards what eventually will happen. Which is which is that kind of we can ideally, you know, long-term just move from place to place instantaneously. I, I don't want to say, you know, teleportation is happening, uh, but... <laughs> it, Right, because I, I mean, it's it's like there's lots of messy implications with that. It's like, well, are you the same person who stepped on the other side? Like, probably not. You know, extrapolating and, and taking the limit to you know maximum travel speed, it just seems that that's you know naturally where humans want to go. So, so yeah, I think that's that's kind of what we're seeing with COVID right now. Is everyone's like, oh, I don't need to be in a metropolitan area, so I'm gonna go. Like, if I can, I'm gonna go somewhere else. Right? Is that is that kind of line up with? how you're thinking about the future of cities is people kind of are more distributed. They have a little bit more land. They're maybe not as tightly condensed. And then they kind of go into urban areas to conduct business and socialize. 
Well, maybe like my version of the future is where we have multiple cities and every city is self-sufficient and you have things like uh, indoor agriculture everywhere and stuff like that. And, and there are power, power in each city and everything's great. Uh, and then you can, you just have to connect between cities from time to time. In a way, it's also shaped by human nature. Uh, I think, you know, through, throughout time, it's like most people are okay with the way things are done. And there's like a 5% of the population who are like, no, no, let's just do this crazy thing instead. And then we end up settling somewhere in between. Uh, so, so I think we wouldn't just have a huge suburb. We, we're still going to have city centers. So it's just going to be, uh, more of them and just more scattered around. Yeah. T- tell me more about how you're viewing cities of the future. That's not directly related to flying cars, but you seem to have done some thinking and, and have some ideas. Yeah. So just, just to add to the flying car part of it, part of the reason why uh, we thought, oh, hi, uh, flying car, you know, this is in the same time where people like Elon Musk are saying Hyperloop because we think the no infrastructure part uh, is key. I, I think during times like these where, you know, uh, COVID and even the fires in California uh, to a degree have shown us that we cannot, well, relying too heavily on infrastructure and it, when it fails can can hurt us pretty bad. And also maintaining infrastructure is very expensive and we don't necessarily have the right vehicles to maintain it. But I, I do often, going back to Citizen Future, uh, I do often think about the impact on the cities, flying cars. Back when I was in, in university, I had these kind of like, I don't want to call it a startup because we didn't have any sales, but with a friend, we were growing uh, lettuce uh, in, in, our, in our basement because the whole idea was like, oh, indoor agriculture make the food supply for every city self-sufficient. So I kind of, that, that's where I started thinking about cities of the future. Now, indoor agriculture doesn't work for a number of reasons. Um, it, and it's basically economics. You kind of have robots here, very expensive robots competing with, you know, the cheapest labor in developing nations. And uh, for a number of reasons that doesn't work. And then there's also an, an ethical side of it, but we kind of like put that in the freezer. Because there's a couple of companies that are working on that, that indoor agriculture space. But I, it, it seems like it's one of those things that will really line up when we do have alternate sources of fuel that are a bit more efficient and, and less cost effective. You know, I think it makes great sense. It's just you would be surprised at how cheap it is to, to produce crops. Transportation ends up being like uh, the bulk of the cost, which is it's insane. And even then, you're, you're paying not very much. It's it's pretty crazy. And I think maybe the forcing function there, it's going to be something related with global warming. You know, there's a lot of these developing nations are being hit the hardest. That's going to either drive costs up or even kill production altogether. Uh, and, and then we're going to have to act. Right now, indoor agriculture, I think it makes sense for places like Dubai or the desert where, you know, nothing really grows. Um, and that's... That's great. Uh, I, I'm still super interested in that space. Yeah. Okay. So actually, I'm curious. I know on on Thursday when we synced up, you mentioned that that you and Garrett Scott, who just came on the the show, have differing opinions about the way like logistics like will operate within cities. And I'm wondering if you could kind of shed some light on on where you two agree and where you two uh, may have a difference in opinion. Yeah. So so what Garrett is doing is it's awesome, right? So he's building an infrastructure network for basically delivery uh, in a way of like, um, you know, n- never seen before. And it also has this touch of like, well, this this seems super simple. Why did I, did I not think of that before? Uh, and I kind of love those ideas because it makes you kick yourself. Yeah, no, I, I think it's the infrastructure versus no infrastructure um, kind of thing. It, it just seems like it just seems that you know history says that you know shows history shows that maintaining infrastructure is really hard, um, and there can never there never seems to be enough infrastructure when we need it the most, and then we, when we don't need it, we kind of like we don't maintain it, and then 
when we the next day when we do need it, it's not there anymore. So it just seems that minimizing infrastructure is the way to go. That that's basically it. And also, when you minimize infrastructure, you can be more flexible. You can roll out things faster. In a way, so this is something that I've been thinking about. But I, I think that internet networks borrowed a lot from how cities are built to set up their infrastructure. And, and now we're at a point where software and servers have like taken uh, the lead, and we should be looking to what they're doing. So you have things like edge computing uh, and stuff like that. That it's kind of like breaking apart the the hard late infrastructure approach. Can you can you elaborate on that? The the heart like infrastructure approach. What is that? Uh, basically, the difference of oh, instead of having a, a huge data center, uh, they're gonna have like they're gonna host it as scattered around, basically, right? So yeah, basically, and then you don't have to uh, build huge infrastructures uh, on, on your center, basically, right? So again, that goes back to distributing your cities uh, in a way you can kind of like ease the load on on your net road networks in this case. Uh, but if you can just get rid of the road networks altogether and just like fly. That is especially, you know, the highest density you will ever be able to support. Basically, you still have physical limitations. Like if everyone wants to go to a point, not, not everyone can get to that point. Uh, that's his, that's his life. Yeah. Cause you're going to, you're going to have that, whether it's in the air or on the ground. Uh, yeah, basically. Can you paint the picture for me? Like, so there's, there's a lot of companies in this or are that are moving into this like electric flying car space. Can you kind of paint me a picture of the, the landscape and maybe comment on on some of the, the approaches other people are taking and some of the pros and cons of those things? Yeah, so right now there's um, there's over 100, uh, we're, we might be at 200 now, companies pursuing some sort of electric aircrafts, whether that is uh, regular uh, electric airplanes, you know, the small ones, again, like the Cessnas, uh, Pipistrels, kind of like two-seater, five-seater, very small airplanes that just take off like regular airplanes. Then you have some... Uh, companies working on electrifying commercial aircrafts. Uh, and as a subgroup of that, you have uh, electric and hydrogen powered aircrafts, just because, you know, electric can only drive a motor and motors can only drive a, a propeller. But hydrogen, you can have a hydrogen turbine. So that's, now you're talking back, back to like high thrust. And then as a subset, you have, you know, you actually have electric helicopters and then you have electric paragliders and stuff like that in the recreational arena. And then where we are, the electrical vertical takeoff and landing or EV toll, that's also becoming very popular. I would break that down into at least three groups. You have the kind of like big aircraft that can only take off and land vertically, like helicopters have no wings. And then the ones that have wings and then as kind of like the super small ones, which are, we're actually not as common. Yeah. So, so wings and no wings, kind of like larger EV toll aircrafts. You have players like Kitty Hawk, backed by Larry Page. You have Jovi Aviation, backed by, you know, Giants and Lilium in Germany. And you have all these uh, resources. I think that's where the money's converging. Kind of like five passengers, somehow, somehow autonomous electric aircrafts. Uh, now, I, I think that's not going to work just because, again, the we already have helicopters. So that's too close to a helicopter. And if the economics for, uh, for helicopters worked, we, we would already be doing that. Uh, but to the country, we have helicopter com- char- charter companies uh, going bankrupt. Boom in, in the Bay Area, uh, shut down operations earlier this year. Blade is scaling down. Same in, in Brazil, which was the largest helicopter market and in Mexico City. So I, I'm not convinced that just because you built a better electric aircraft, uh, now you can run a, a profitable charter business. So I don't see where those fit in. Now, if you can electrify uh, commercial aviation, uh, yeah, sure, that that's good. You know, the margins are thin. If you can bring operation costs down, 
uh, I, I think uh, you, you'll do all right. Same for the small, regular airplanes, flight passengers, electrifying that, the Cessnas, that's good because a lot of their market is flight schools. And again, they, they love that stuff. So yeah, I, I could see that. But again, in the EV toll space, I think you do want to be small and that's that's where we are. That's why we are doing what we're doing. Well, yeah, because the challenge is not necessarily just building it. It's it's getting getting like adoption and getting people to use it and then rolling it out. Because if you start too, too consumery, then you have you have issues with the pilot's license sort of things. You have issues with the like cultural adoption. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the technology is there. That's obvious because you can probably even look up on YouTube a uh, giant drone and someone has built a giant drone on their backyard that can probably carry a person, uh, not super safely and not super reliably, but for the most part, it works. So yeah, I think it's all about customer adoption um, and having a, a viable path to market so, so that's why we start doing things like, oh, you don't, you don't have to get a pilot license, which, which takes like a hundred hours and thousands of dollars. Or, hey, look, it costs as much as a car and it, it, our aircraft fits in a car parking space. So it's kind of like, it starts to feel more familiar. And when you sit inside, it also feels familiar. Uh, the fit and finish is like that of a, a luxury car. So yeah, I think that's, that's a real battle. Um, and then of course there's regulations, but like I said, we're, we're flowing that down the path just by kind of like being an air vehicle for now. I think there we may find ourselves in a situation in the next couple of years where the regulatory environment hopefully lightens up. And so anyone who's trying to battle it right now is going to find themselves just kind of out of resources. So you guys are, I would argue, uniquely positioned to kind of weather that storm and be in a position to take advantage of it when that clears up, hopefully. Yeah, well, in a way, if, if we, you know, if regulations never change, then I guess we'll be a recreational aircraft company for many, many years. But if, if they do change, yeah, we'll be in a good spot. We will, yeah. I think that's that's a that's different. Yeah, that's a, another long project. Is how do we how do we change the regulatory space? And I say, well, I say basically. See, I don't want to call it a moonshot because I don't see flying cars as a moonshot anymore. Uh, many many of your guests are real moonshots. Uh, I hear people are building all kinds of weird, weird things, factories in the moon, and so on. I, I think flying cars. You know, like I said, the tech is already there. You can you can see it uh, on the news already. So I don't call it a moonshot anymore. I think it's just part of the future. But when you're starting a startup in this area, investors are still not comfortable with it. So it's also very important to have that revenue stream early on, that first aircraft that you can sell without certifying uh, full as a, you know, as a commercial aircraft. And even before you build it, you can start selling on your website kind of thing. That, that helps a lot. But that's, that's also something that I hope it's going to change now, given COVID. I, I think there's two things at play here. So first of all, uh, we, we all kind of know that you know, sometime in the future, we don't know when, maybe soon, maybe not so soon, bad things are coming. Uh, and that's just in terms of global warming. Um, we're getting a taste of it. Well, America is getting a taste of it. Uh, the rest of the world has been getting a taste of it <laughs> for a while now. Uh, and the other one is like COVID again, like uh, infrastructure not being there when we need it. Uh, and what if it, this happens again? We want to be ready. So now you, you kind of have to invest in infrastructure heavy projects and Kind of like new technologies and, and that's very capital intensive. So I hope that we're going to see more, you know, more funding vehicles, more financial vehicles that can fund these kind of projects. And it will also help moonshots at the end of the day. Yeah. Let's, 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 let's dive into it a little bit more. How are you thinking about, like, if you were an investor, how would you approach funding things like these? Or if you could wave a magic wand and have the funding environment be set up to support sort of kind of capital intensive, long term, um, high risk, high reward projects, like what, what might that look like? Yes. So just, just being real right now, 
So, so BC venture capital uh, is usually who people go talk to and pitch these ideas. I would say venture capitalists, a lot of them talk about wanting to make the world a better place and so on, uh, or say like it's time to build and so on. But the, the truth is that venture capital, is say it's an asset class. Um, and LP, so they have LPs, limited partners who give them money for them to invest. And those LPs are not giving them money saying like, hey, go change the world. No, they're giving them money uh, to get returns uh, and they have, you know, liquidity terms and they have, you know, expected returns and expected timeframes. Whether the VCs go on pitch that they want to change the world or not, uh, that has nothing to do with that. So I am not 100% convinced that VC is the way. And, and we personally have not taken any VC funds. We, we work uh, with, only with angels and, and our customers. That That's it. But I think that if... You know, I, I have seen VCs talking about uh, longer timeframes. It, it, it's usually 10 years. Now they're talking about 15 years. That's good. I, I think founders can do some risk management from their side. So any investor understands that, you know, venture capital is risky. And that's why they place a, a number of bets, right? They don't only invest in one company. And they also understand that moonshots are even more risky. Um, that's why most investors don't even touch them. So as a, as a moonshot founder, you, you're kind of like against the odds here. So... You're against the odds for getting funded, and you're also against the odds uh, for your own personal success. Uh, so I think that adds a barrier. Maybe we're not getting the like all the good, the best talent we could get if it was slightly easier. So I was thinking that maybe founders could kind of like manage this risk by bundling together. You can have like ten founders, all have different companies, but they share equity in each other, and then you can invest in the company bundle as one. So as an investor, it's like, oh, okay, my one bed has like kind of like better odds now in a way it's already diversified in a way even if only one of these crazy ideas works uh will probably pay off right so that that's what i've been thinking lately uh that that, that would probably be a good idea yeah because it's the the issue is you're all in on one thing and so if you can diversify that across other investments that are equally as ambitious equally as challenging but we'll have the because i mean actually i mean if any of these categorically moonshot projects pay off they're gonna be massive businesses they have the potential to fundamentally change the way the world operates. And like, there's plenty of capital upside there. I also think if you make it slightly easier for founders, okay, maybe your, your, your company didn't work out, but you still have equity in the other company. So now you want them to succeed. So you'll help them or everyone will help amongst each other. Um, I think that would also be huge. In a way, this is what Elon Musk is doing. Uh, he's bundling a lot of his companies, right? So he's creating a lot of companies and then he bundles them together in a way. And I think he has Tesla, Neuralink, SpaceX, the Warren Company, and, and maybe some stakehold in what's it, some AI company. Oh yeah, OpenAI, yeah. Yeah, and they all benefit from each other. They all share talent. They all share basically access to, to capital. Uh, and this is all because, you know, kind of Elon brings them all together. So, so that's kind of like the same idea in steroids. Uh, to a lesser degree, I think it could still work, you know, with less experienced founders or, or less like, you, you know, non-Elon Musk level founders. But yeah. So I, I, did, I don't know, maybe you saw this, but the, the Apollo projects. Yeah. That the Altmans are, Altman brothers or well, Max and then Sam and Jack are supporting. That's, I think that's one of the things they're looking to experiment with is can they, can they give the, the founders the option to swap equity in, the other companies. Yeah, I think they were doing like, I, I did see that. I think they were doing like 2%, 3%. I, I don't think that's enough, but I, I did like it that, like I said, like Elon, Elon's bundle works because Elon's name is behind it. I do like the Apollo because it's, uh, it's the old man's name behind it. Uh, so he kind of like validates the, the whole group. Yeah, I, I can't wait to see. I, I don't think they have announced who, who they invested in, the, but yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. And actually, 
I do love, you know, it, it's the Altman brothers, but I do love how much uh, Sam Altman has uh, spoken about, you know, moonshots and just trying crazy things. From his time in YC, I think after he left YC, actually, YC changed a lot. And I think that they're not taking those risks anymore. Uh, and you can you can clearly tell, like, before Sam and after Sam, it's, it's very clear. Yeah, it's it, someone described it well, like, yeah, it's mostly SaaS focused. That's where returns are. But I, I still think what they're what they're doing is impactful and like they're driving people into the space and giving them the resources that they can then i think the the long-term impact is people will go try stuff they'll start stuff and be like actually no this company i started with is not actually exciting i want to do something more meaningful oh but now i have connections to investors i have connections to a bunch of incredible peers like i have a network oh i can go raise money to go build a particle assembler because now i know everybody or something like that yeah, which is, which I, it's, I think it's something that every founder needs to ask himself or herself. It's like, okay, uh, you, you know, what, what do you want to achieve and what's your time frame, right? Because if you want to achieve something huge, say you want to build a factory in the moon in the next 20, 30 years, then maybe your first 10 or five years are better spent, you know, making money and building those connections. Uh, so then you're a better spot basically to do it. The same way Elon first built uh, some payment processing company, possibly not the coolest thing, maybe back then. Kind of cool. Uh, and then got into building rockets, right? So higher odds of success, basically. I think, would you say it all comes down to kind of just taking a long-term view of things? I mean, in a way, yes. It, it, it's a long-term view that sets your direction, I think. But it, 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 there's there's a point where, you know, long-term view meets practicality, meets reality. It's like, yeah, long-term view. We we could just build flying cars behind closed doors. That might not probably not work. That will tr- take a lot of money. Uh, but we build the future and we'll unveil it on the future or or we can kind of like self-correct in real time, uh, sell in early and, and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. So so that's one of the other things I'm really excited about what what you're doing, how you guys are showing up is you're you're almost working in public where you're trying to get everyone involved. Can you tell me about a little bit more about how you're thinking about that and what you're doing to keep people looped in and then as a result of that, kind of how people can support? Yeah. So, so for context for, for listeners. So if you go on Instagram and look up Wattfly, W-A-T-F-O-Y, we post every single build, every single layout, every single assembly process, uh, time lapse on our Instagram. So everyone can see it. And I think this is, there's other companies doing that. Of course, more, most famously, Boom Aerospace is doing it. I think this is something that every single company should do. This is a, this is one of those things where hardware companies have an edge. It's like, well, you, Everyone kind of like wants to see what you're building. It's pretty cool. You don't see kind of like an, an airplane coming together every day, right? That's that's pretty unique. And and that's how, you know, we're, we're just using what we're going to have to be doing anyways to build a following, to drive sales uh, and our message out there, basically. So, so yeah, it's kind of like advertising pays for itself in a way. Everyone should be doing this, yeah. And then, and then how can people, so they can go to Instagram, they can follow along. Um, how else can people support support you guys? Uh, well, yeah, you can just go on Instagram. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I am at get, get me flying cars. You can go on our website today, wattfly.ca, and you can, you can literally pre-order it right now. You can drop us a line if you like what we're doing or not. I, I invite you to compare us to all of our competitors because we've been doing this for three years and we're, we, we're pretty sure, you know, we have an edge. When are you guys planning to, to ship? Oh, to ship. Okay. So, uh, so we ha- haven't actually flown the full scale yet. So we were going to do that uh, before Halloween, but we'll, we're now looking at November, which is still ahead of our December d- deadline, which is what we, we, we set a year back, which is kind of crazy that things are working out even with Corona. 
uh, and then shipping is next year, so late next year. Uh, and this is gonna be like the first ten units. It's gonna be handcrafted, uh, and only then we're we're gonna look at at more. Uh, what what's crazy is that you know not far from today, maybe five years, we might be the the biggest aircraft manufacturer by volume in North America. Because like I said, no one no one really builds aircraft at high volumes. It's 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 a low bar. Yeah, and is that is that just because of of demand for? I mean, Boeing they only need to produce like a thousand a year because they're or however many because that's how many orders are and there's so like so many uh yeah of course the boeing ones are first of all they're huge they're very expensive and, and their market is capped uh in a way where even if though they have a duopoly their sales don't go up because they only grow as the market grows basically that, that's what happens when you eat the market last last question for you outside of the work you're doing at wildfly and and i, I will say also you know kind of the future of cities what excites you the most about the future so there's two things that I do outside of Wattfly that I'm excited for. So so first of all, it, it's a social good one. So I think that Wattfly and things like that are great and they're, they, they're going to help move from humanity forward as a whole and we're all going to benefit. Uh, but it, it, it does leave behind the lowest denominator. So, so there's a lot of people who are not going to benefit from flying cars uh, because they don't have the simplest uh, things. They don't have running water. So, so one thing that I'm pretty excited for, it's, it's charity water. Um, and that, that's, that's what I work with right now. But also like just in general, it, it does excite me to bring all the technology that we enjoy today to the lowest denominator of society, basically, uh, and kind of like raise everyone in a way that's still sustainable. I think that's a really exciting challenge. And the other one, it's going to be super cliche. Uh, but GPT three before, like, I think that just. I think that changed the world or, or will change our world. It, it kind of felt like uh, the start of something huge. So I do want to get involved with it at some point, hopefully sooner than later. There's probably going to be a ton of opportunities there. Which is, yeah, in Vrilla, so that's um, OpenAI's learning model. Do you, how would you succinctly describe GPT-3? It's basically everything that Siri that you would want Siri to be, right? So you can ask these computer questions, and it will actually give you real answers. Uh, it'll, it'll, and it's not just uh, kind of like computer answers; they feel very natural, and they, they're creative, and they can add like that human flair in a way to a way where you know a lot of people are posting content and saying like, "Oh, and by the way, GPT three did all of this. I didn't write this, or I didn't paint this, and so on." So I think to a lot of people that that is what artificial intelligence is, or at least that's the promise. And and it just seems like we're way closer than we, we first thought. At, at least, and again, I, I know a lot of tech people are going to say like, oh, actually, no, it's not that close or uh, it's not that perfect. But I'm, I'm talking for, you know, the general public here. This is it. This, this is this is good enough. And this is, this is huge. And it's kind of huge. And it's probably as impactful as, you know, the internet was like back then. Right. So, so to me, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, man, it'll be, it'll be cool to see that, see that play out. If you want to learn more about Wattfly or follow along as they work in public, head on over to wattfly.ca. And if you want to learn more about Gonzalo, you can find him on Twitter at GetMeFlyingCars. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Build the Future podcast. Lastly, if you're building and want to get support, want to hear about certain topics or from certain people, or just want to get involved in helping build the future, Shoot us over an email at hello at buildthefuturepodcast.com or follow me, Cameron, on Twitter at Cam Weesey, and we'll see what we can make happen. That's it from us. Until next time, go build.